Welcome to the Gospel Ministry of Exchange Church. Thank you for connecting with us for our Bible talk today, and please feel free to share these talks with others as well. It's our desire to connect people to Jesus and grow people in Jesus. To find out more about us, please visit our website, www.exchangechurch.org.au. Well, question. What do you do when you fail God? As we um, saw the last talk and Laurel's question really, I think, helped clarify it. Our double-mindedness is something that's never going to leave us. So what do we do when we fail God and then we fail him again? Uh, James is going to tell us what to do. And in summary, it's this. It's the title of the talk. Uh, it is turn back and keep turning back to God. Kind of what I said before, We, you keep living through faith and repentance. Turn back and keep turning back to God because with God there is always, always more grace. James gives us three practical examples of life where our double-mindedness trips us up, teaches us what to do in these areas, but he also knows we'll get it wrong, so he takes us to God. Uh, where we'll find grace. So if you're into outlines or taking notes, here it is. Um, three examples. There's two wisdoms, first example. Two friendships, second example. Two plans, third example. And, and the last point is one gracious God. Now, as Yolanda was reading that, I noticed James seems pretty fired up. It's a pretty strong passage. It says strong things to us. 4 verse 4 was pretty strong, don't you think? To be friends with the world is to be an adulterer towards God. Ouch, that's pretty strong, isn't it? Strong language. Uh, 4 verse 17, never mind the sins you do commit. Struggle with them enough. 4 17 tells me when, when I don't do something I knew I should have done, that's sin. Okay, he's not letting us kind of, <laughs> you know, lose attention here. Um, I think James is particularly fired up in this part of his letter because it's here that he really exposes and diagnoses our double-mindedness. Just look at 4, 8 to 9. It says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Mourn and weep, he says. When's the last time you mourned and wept over your sin? I have. I haven't done it enough. James wants us to see how seriously flawed we are, to be upset about it, so that we're motivated to change and keep turning back to God. With God there's more grace. I wonder, is that the view of God that you have? With God there's always more grace. And one of the places you go to see that is the Old Testament. If you're in the habit of reading through the Old Testament, you read through the book of Kings and Chronicles and just see how appalling Israel was and the kings were. Do you know the story of Manasseh? Um, Two Chronicles tells us his story. It says that he made Jerusalem run with the blood of the innocent. This is the king of Israel. He sacrificed his children to Molech. Burnt them alive. Right? So God judged him. 
He had the Babylonians haul him off to Babylon. He's in prison. Guess what happens? He's in prison. He repents of his sin. He turns to God. Guess what God does? He restored him. Took him back to Jerusalem and put him back as the king. Would you do that with Manasseh? I'd have shot him on sight. It's, it's just incredible. And God's grace is so strong. I go, really? I don't, that doesn't, just doesn't seem just to me. That's where we, we understand God's grace because we realise that Jesus' death on the cross paid for Manasseh's sin. God, with God there's more grace, see? So James will take us back to him. Um, I, I think, you know, when I there's that little phrase, it's, I think it's in 4 verse 6, with God there's more grace. He gives more grace, 4 verse 6. God's like an artesian bore of grace. Have you ever seen an artesian bore? Go out in the flat country, really dry country, you've been driving through flat, dry country for hours, if not days, come across an artesian bore and it doesn't matter if it's drought or flood, night or day, the water's just bubbling out of it, just coming out and you see all this green, that's like God's grace. Just keeps, that's what he's like, to be gracious. So this passage brings two big truths of the Christian life together. Left to ourselves, we're hopeless sinners. Left to God, God's uh, and God's abundant, inexhaustible grace. So, firstly, though, the three examples he gives of how we fail God. So, first two wisdoms, verses thirteen to eighteen. Verse thirteen, he begins by asking us a question: Who is wise and understanding among you? And the answer to his question is found in the evidence of our lives says there's two kinds of wisdom in our world there's the wisdom from above that's from God God's wisdom is good wisdom and it's shown in a good life true wisdom in verse 13 um, who is wise and understanding among you by his good conduct let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom right so that's that's how you know it's godly wisdom it's it's demonstrated in a good Meek, wise, godly life. The second kind of wisdom, verse 14, is earthly wisdom. And it's known by what it produces. Bitter envy and jealous and selfish ambition, verse 15. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Earthly wisdom comes from envy and selfish ambition and produces, verse 16, disorder and every kind of evil practice. So they're starkly different. The wisdom of God, which is uh, so starkly different from the wisdom of God, verse 17, which is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good fruit, impartial and sincere. When you live by his, this wisdom, the outcome is wonderful. Verse 18, peace and righteousness. James asks, which kind of wise are you? What are you known for? Worldly wisdom or godly wisdom? The trouble is that as bad as worldly wisdom seems, it's actually quite attractive. 
to my two-timing sinfulness. I have a sinful, envious, selfish heart and worldly wisdom promises that side of me so much as such a strong appeal. One of my impulsive, sinful shortcomings is that I love speed, not the drug. It's the stuff you do on motorbikes. Um, I used to ride motorbikes. Last bike I had was a 1200. I've sold it because I just can't behave on them. I can't. Um, it's, it, I love it, okay? <laughs> it's a problem. Um, so one night as a committed petrol head, I'm, I'm, the, a, a, a uh, documentary comes on about Peter Brock. You know who Peter Brock is? One of Australia's greatest racing car drivers. Just incredible talent. But Peter Brock was a great exponent of the wisdom of the world. He was envious of success almost, well, at any price, almost as an art form. Uh, one of his wives, okay, one of his wives said everything, everything was about his racing. Um, and what was the result of Peter Brock's life? Disorder and evil practice of every kind. He left a trail of destruction in his wake before he died. And yet, Peter Brock was surrounded by people who excused him, in, um, who yeah, excused his behaviour. In Bathurst, there's a four metre tall monument to him. Why is that? Because he was a great exponent of the wisdom of the world. We love our heroes. He was, he was a great exponent of it. And I'm watching this show. And I've got to say, I'm offended by a stack of what I see Peter Brock was like. But I tell you, the other thing that kicked in, I was envious. I wish I could drive like him. I was envious of his skill. I was envious of what had got him, his money, his fame, maybe even his women. Like, I was, you know, I, was, I had this double-minded thing going on as I watched this thing of Peter Brock. That's just one example of me. Can I ask, what about you? What worldly wisdom... Do you want to pursue? I know I find it very hard to think in, think about ladies. Um, ladies, what it is? What is it with you? I think I think I understand blokes. It's pretty basic usually, and not very nice. Uh, but women, I, I, I saw an ad once. It had this beautiful woman on it, and it said, "Age is just a number." And it was put, it was by a um, cosmetics. Mom? In other words, doesn't matter how old you are, buy our products and you can always, always just be absolutely the most beautiful woman in the room. Do you ladies believe that nonsense? Okay, I don't think you're all beautiful with it. You don't need any of that stuff. Right? Like, we're tempted, aren't we? There's two wisdoms coming at us all the time. But we're Christians. All of us, every one of us in the room, I assume, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're just checking us out. But Christians, uh, we have been given the wisdom from above. That's how we became a Christian. 1 verse 18 says, God has chosen to give us birth new life through the word of truth. All right, that's how we became, we have God's wisdom. 121 describes it as the implanted word growing up in us. 
We know what's true. We know what's right. We know it's wise. We know it saves. We know it helps. But there's that rotten, sinful nature of ours. It's envious. Continues to want what's not ours. We're double-minded. So we listen to the wisdom of the world. And, as I said before, it's unfortunately we're never free of it. But James will show us how we can ensure that the wisdom from above will grow stronger and the wisdom of the world can grow weaker. So two wisdoms. That's a battle you're going to face. Now two friendships. Four, one to five. Our struggle is not just between two wisdoms. It's between two friendships. The friendship of the world, the friendship of God. The word from friendship here is actually a really strong word. It's the word filio, which means brotherly love. So this is not casual friendship. It's strong. It's deep. It's a bonding friendship. Verse 4 immediately lets us know that. See what it says? You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It's very strong, isn't it? These two friendships or loves come from the two wisdoms. Our friendship with the world is driven by the wisdom of the world and its effects are terrible. 4, 1 to 3, keep your eye out for the earthly wisdom of envy, self that lies behind the trouble that's described. See what he says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your evil desire that battle within you? You desire but you don't have, so you kill. You covet but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The word for desire there is the word that, from which we get hedonism, word for pleasure, a lifestyle of pleasure. And that's Australia, isn't it? Like I said, the land of the long weekend. Australians, we desire, we envy the pleasures that others have. Good food, great holidays, better houses. We want to get that Isuzu so we can go our own way. That's just, that's just, you know, that's our lubricant. That's who we are. So what do we do? We covet. Verse 3 says that we even drag God into our covetousness by asking him um, to fulfil our envious covetous prayers. I read a quote by Rico Tice. He says this, We turn God into a divine waiter. He's there to deliver our daydreams. We put our order in via prayer. We might give a decent tip in the collection plate. We treat God as if he's there to give us what we want and when and we get furious with him if he doesn't deliver. We Christians are drawn by the two by two friendships, one with God, one um, with the world. And James says, don't fool yourself about this. It's not incidental in fact it's adultery it's adultery which is a big call isn't it there's no worse thing that can happen in a marriage than adultery adultery is worse than if your partner dies it hurts more 
And God says, that's what it's like when you, you know, here's God and you turn your back on him and you go, I want the world. God says, that's adultery. So strong. When I married Robin, I was asked, will you take Robin to be your wife? Will you give Robin the honour due to her as your wife and forsaking all others, love love and protect her as long as you both shall live? And I said, I will. And Robin smiled when she heard me say that. It was pretty good. And the fact is it won't work, will it? If I don't exclusively love Robin. Like imagine, imagine this. One day I come home and say to Robin... Honey, I met this woman at the supermarket and I was wondering if you'd mind if I spent every second night with her. Like, it's such an appalling thing to even use as an example. I don't even like saying it. God says, that's what it's like. Um, Verse 5 says that God jealously longs for the spirit he's caused to dwell in us. This imagery comes from the Old Testament where God keeps comparing the children of Israel to adulterous wives who just keep running off after other lovers. See, if God has given you, if you are a Christian, God's given you a life, he's given you his spirit who dwells in you and he jealously, you know, guards that, he longs for that. But you see, our self-deceiving double-mindedness makes us think that we can have it both ways. That it doesn't matter. So, can I ask, at the moment, what thing, what thing is trumping God for your friendship? Just please think about it. Your life, in the week, your life. What is the one thing that is kind of getting your attention away from God. Identify it. Write it down if you've got a pen. And then think beside that, write beside that, the word adultery. It's pretty strong. Yeah. So two wisdoms, two friendships, next thing, two goals, two plans. Two plans. Another example of how our double-mindedness trips us up. The plans that we have for our life, You might say our ambitions. We're caught between two very different ways of planning our future. 4.13 to 17 talks about it. We all have plans. We set our goals. There's nothing wrong with that. What's the adage? To fail to plan is to plan to fail. Nothing wrong with plans. James has no problem with that. But he does have a problem with the attitude that drives our planning for those goals. The two different wisdoms that shape our plans, the two different friendships that shape our plans that have us going after a worldly plan instead of what God has said. Planning by the wisdom of envy and self. And if it's successful, it produces arrogance that leads to boasting and pushes Christians into double-minders. Verse 17, if anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, that's sin for them. When you think about it, it's bound to happen that your plans, that you do this or that, your love of the goal you're pursuing, will have a head-on collision 
with a desire to follow God. And you might have experienced this. You decide to go down a certain path, new job, whatever, and you find yourself getting too busy to go to church. Um, or you started a new business, I'm not sure, whatever it is, but you cut back your giving to church because you need a few more bucks just to get things up and running. You compromise family life because your plans need you to give it more time than your family. It happens to us all the time, doesn't it? I don't know how many Christians I know have moved to towns to change their job. They give it all they've got. Next thing you know, you catch up with them. How's church? Oh, I haven't been going much lately. I've been very busy. Yep. But if your life is shaped by the wisdom of God, when your plans have a head-on collision with your love for God, you'll alter your plans and do the things that grows your love for God. The wisdom of the world, the love of the world and the goals of the world, they're three battlegrounds for our double-mindedness. James' purpose is to help us see and acknowledge that that's so, so that we will turn back to God for help. He's just helping you realise, can you realise that you struggle with these things? Let me encourage you to turn back to God. So, one God, one gracious God. The God who is the only true source of wisdom, the God who judges worldliness. I encourage you to read on into 5, 1 to 6. It's a massive warning to people who will pursue the wisdom of the world. James says, you know what? You pursue that, you're very likely to get rich. And guess what? Your riches are going to rot. And God will hold you, God will judge you. It's James 5, 1 to 6. I encourage you to read it. But his big point is that God is the source, the source of true wisdom is also the source of grace. See, this isn't just harsh truth. He's just not telling us to beat up on us and make us feel bad. He's helped us feel, he's helped us feel the weight of it, but now he says God gives more grace. If we continue in our own proud, selfish way, God will stand opposed to us, verse 6. He will oppose us. If we humble ourselves, verse 10 says that he will lift us up. And verse 6 starts with that lovely phrase, but he gives more grace. So in verses 7 to 8, just focus on that now, James unpacks for us what it is to humble ourselves before God, to submit to God. What's that look like? Submitting means recognising God's rule over us. We all too easily forget the Christian life is one of submission. Jesus said we must deny ourselves, take up his cross daily and follow him. He's telling us that we must submit to his will, to his way, because he is Jesus Christ, which means he's our saviour king. But to deny ourselves and submit to God is hard because it means saying no to my envy, selfish desires. It's hard to submit to God. 
Submission means acknowledging my double-mindedness and then turning towards God and saying, your will, your wisdom, not mine. To do that, to submit to God, we must know his will, we must know his word, we must know his wisdom. And James had a bit to say about that through his letter. Time and time again, be quick to listen. Do not merely listen to the word, do what it says. Look intently to the perfect law that gives freedom and continue in it. Humbly accept the word planted in you which can save you. What James says we need to do with God's word. You see, you can only submit to God, only submit to his will if you know what it is. You can only submit to God if you keep turning back to him, back to what he said, listening to what he says, doing what he says. That's what it means to submit to God. If and when you do that, the implanted word grows in you so that you will find that you will become more fruitful for God and less fruitful for the world. So we're to submit to God, verse 7. We're to resist the devil. Resist the devil. Humbling ourselves means resisting the devil. Verse 7, resist the devil and he will flee from you. I wonder, do you believe that? Resist the devil and he will flee from you. He's a real force in the world. He operates in the shadows of subtle half-truths, of suggestive doubt. He appeals to our desires. He sounds kind of scary. But this sentence ends with the great promise, if you resist him, he will flee from you. We've got two examples in the Bible. One is Adam and Eve who didn't resist him and the rest, as we know, is history. (laughs) They could have resisted, couldn't they? Has God said? Yes, he has. Be quiet. Get out of here. Has God said? Oh, gee, I don't know. That fruit looks pretty good. Not going to resist the devil. I'm going to submit to him. Death follows. Then we've got the example of Jesus. Bible says this, you know, or, or trust me for this. Jesus quotes scripture. He knows what God said. He knows what God's will is. He says, leave me. Two examples, Adam and Eve or Jesus. Jesus resisted the devil because he knew God's word, God's will, and the devil fled. I wonder what temptation, what internal desire it is that is particularly besetting you at the moment. How is the devil getting under your, you know, armour? Stop and think about it. Write it down. Because I want to ask you now, do you know what God's answer is to that? Do, do, Do you know what God says about that? Sexual immorality, greed, I don't know, whatever it is. You know how Satan's, you know, chipping away at you. Do you know what God says about that? So you actually know know what you've got to do, don't you? And James says, start resisting him and he'll flee. 
That's how you resist the devil. You trust in God's truth. You stand in God's truth. And the devil doesn't get in. If you resist the devil, he will flee from you. But it doesn't stop there. Verse 8. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. See, and often that's the last thing we want to do, isn't it? Because we just know that our sin, hang on, we've done it one too many times. God, no, sorry, I've blown it. I cannot come near to God. I can think of numerous times when my kids um, have got to the point in some crisis where they they just know they've got to come and talk to me. What did I do? No, you've blown it. You're no longer my children. Nick off. No. <laughs> they come near to me, I come near to them. And God's better at it than me. So humility means coming to God, admitting that we need you. Can you imagine Manasseh sitting in that prison cell in Babylon? He's learnt of the graciousness of God and he thinks to himself, yeah, but I've sacrificed my children. If I come near to God, will he come near to me? I'm in Babylon. I can imagine he wrestled with that for how long? And he thought, no, no, I'm going to come near. And guess what? God came near to him. Extraordinary. Humility means coming to God, admitting we need help, that we can't do it and God's wait waits for us to call on him for help. 1 verse 5 says, If you lack wisdom, ask God, he who gives generously to all without finding fault. Grow your habit not only of reading the Bible, but of coming in prayer and humility. God is your Father. He's waiting. Next thing he tells us to do is repent. See there, cleanse your hands and hearts. Coming to God requires repentance, turning away from sin. When you turn towards God, you know, if God's there and I've been, I've got to turn away, haven't I? I've got to come to God and sort of apologise for what I've been up to. That's what, we've got to cleanse our hands and hearts. I love the way he says that. um, James says, verse 8, Wash your hands, you sinners, purify your hearts, you double-minded. See, hands and hearts. Hands is what you do, right? The heart is your attitude. It's a change of behaviour, what you do, and a change of mindset. And both have to happen. So you change your mind about something, but then allow your old habits to take you back to sinning on autopilot. You change your sinful actions, but you haven't changed your heart. Same problem. Cleanse your hearts and and your hands and your hearts. It must be both hands and hearts. A real faith always produces action, so real repentance always produces change. And this is no incidental advice to be forgotten. It's real and right and must be taken seriously. James' next words in verse 9 make that clear. 
Your double-mindedness, which drags you off course into sin, should cause you to what? Grieve and mourn and wail. It should change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Why? Because what we're talking is about adultery. (laughs) Can't get more serious than that. Verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. What a great promise. When you think about it, why would anyone not turn back and keep turning back to a God who always has more grace for you? We've all got sins that we struggle with and that we've failed God with a hundred, a thousand times, I don't know. God's got more grace. All this reminds me of the parable of the prodigal son. You know the story, don't you? Young man had done everything he could to reject and offend his father, follows the wisdom of the world. Things go from bad to worse, so he ends up living with pigs and eating their food. But he comes to his sense, says, I'll go back to my father, become one of his servants. Remember how it describes God, the Father? It says he sees him a long way off, runs to welcome him and embrace him. So he came near to God, God came near to him. The son drops to his knees and says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father lifts him up, clothes him with the best robe. He rehabilitates him, puts the the family finger back on his ring and holds a banquet in celebration to his return. That's the picture of God when we go, you know what, I've, I've been so wrong. It is never too late to come back to God. That's what God's like. All he wants you to do is turn away from the world. Whatever it is that's captured your heart, turn towards God, humble yourself. God waits to give you more grace. Once again, if you doubt that, look at the cross. How can you doubt that that's the case? That song that says, Oh, the mercy of God, the glory of grace that he chose to redeem us, to forgive and restore. So James' advice to us, we do struggle with double-minders. Two, two wisdoms, two friendships, two plans. When we realise that, remember with God there's more grace. Turn back to God and keep turning back to God. All right, I'll pray. Dear Lord, thank you that in the Bible you don't just tell us great stories, you tell us horrible stories of men like Manasseh and out of that vile evil shines this incredible ray of light, of hope that you forgave him and restored him. Thank you for that story. Thank you for the demonstration of your grace on the cross from out of that vile evil of the Son of God being tortured and murdered shines this great ray of light, your grace to us. Please, Lord, help us to turn back, to keep turning back, because with you there is more grace. Help us to never doubt it. Help us to encourage one another with it. We ask it for your glory. Amen. 
We trust you have enjoyed our Bible talk from today. If you have any questions or comments from today's talk, please feel free to contact us at info at exchangechurch.org.au. Also, we love to welcome new people at Exchange Church in person, so consider yourself invited to be with us.